The Dow makes history. Bitcoin is now valued at over a trillion dollars. Congress has spent 13% of the GDP to make up for a 5% downturn and isn't stopping there. Price increases have hit commodities across the board and gas prices are up a staggering 22.5% year over year. What's a country to do? No sector has felt the pain of change more than housing. Lumber, appliances, and every other point in the housing and construction supply chain have been disrupted, while housing demand continues to push the limits of supply. Here to make sense of it all, I'm excited to welcome today's guest, Dr. Robert Dietz, Chief Economist and Senior Vice President for Economics and Housing Policy for the National Association of Home Builders. Rob is one of the nation's leading authorities on tax and housing policy with a PhD in economics from Ohio State University. Prior to joining NAHB, he was an economist for the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation. Rob, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Good to join you, Linda. Congress just passed some notable spending bills. Even with the pandemic, Q4 GDP was down 1% from the year prior. Considering the pre-pandemic growth rate of the economy, GDP is only about 5% below where it would have been without lockdowns. In December, Congress passed a COVID relief bill with spending equivalent to 4.2% of GDP. And just last month in March, they passed another stimulus of about 9% of GDP. The latest infrastructure bill spends 10%. That is a lot of stimulus to make up for 5% shortfall. Tell us, please, what is all this spending going to do to inflation and interest rates? Well, I, I think you saw a government, whether it was the prior administration, the current administration, the Federal Reserve, other kinds of policymakers, who took the COVID crisis and the idea of lockdowns very seriously. So we had a 15% of GDP deficit last year. The expectation is for 2021 that the federal deficit's going to be 10% of GDP. And as you said, we've got trillions of dollars of stimulus moving through the system. This was a really unusual business cycle. And typically, in a downturn or a recession, you find that household incomes go down because of job losses. But when you look at the aggregate data, disposable personal income actually increased and increased substantially due to all those programs. So from a, from a, from a stimulus perspective, these policies were very successful. Uh, There's a reason that the economy has a tremendous amount of momentum going into 2021. And our expectation is that GDP growth this year, because of all that money, is going to be at at least a 6% growth rate for the year, which will be the best economic performance for the economy since 1984. But as we like to say in economics, there's no free lunch. And we're seeing some of that in the housing market. The housing market is the leading sector of the economy in the sense that we often go through what the rest of the economy is going to experience we go through it first. And so right now, the challenges are very much on the supply side, particularly with respect to input costs. So whether it's lumber, where pricing is up 200% over the last year, easily adding $24,000 to the price of a single family home, about $9,000 to the price of a typical apartment, or other kinds of building materials that are either in short supply, the costs are going up, delivery times are extended, all of it is adding cost and time to construction development. Um, so 
there's there's tremendous growth. Uh, the, the labor market's getting better. Household balance sheets are, are in exceptional condition given what we went through. But you're starting to see a buildup of some of these inflationary forces. And I think that's why we have to approach an infrastructure bill or additional policy that would you know, propose to inject additional trillions in the economy with some uh, sense of caution, because there are inflationary forces building up in the economy right now. Wow. So you're in favor of more stimulus. Well, in a, in a narrow sense, right? The rental housing market still does need some help, uh, particularly landlords that are under eviction moratorium. I think you can make an argument from a long-run perspective, and this isn't a stimulus argument, but a long-run perspective, that the nation does need to invest more in its infrastructure, whether it's transportation structure or, or energy infrastructure. I think where we need to be particularly cautious, though, is additional household-level stimulus. You know, there's there's an argument to be made of focusing on those three to four million individuals who have been unemployed for more than six months. They are undoubtedly uh, hurting. And when you hear economists talk about a K-shaped recovery where one part of the economy is doing better and some part of the economy is doing worse, that bottom leg of the K would be those, those long-term unemployed. However, it, it's kind of interesting. We talked about supply-side challenges. In the construction industry, you have an unusual situation where overall unemployment is relatively elevated right now. We're at a 6% unemployment rate. The labor force participation rate's gone down from 63% to about 62%, which represents several million adults who aren't looking for work. But then when you look at the overall economy, you find that employers have trouble filling jobs. So usually you'd have more unemployed. You'd have an easier time filling those those positions. So what we need to do is smart policy, targeted policy, maybe in, in the sense of training people to bring them from unemployment into sectors where jobs are in demanding. And construction is clearly one of those right now. Mm-hmm. So maybe scrap everything on the next stimulus except the 6% for bridges and roads. I, I think that's that's a decent idea as a starting place. And I think with the negotiations between the Republicans and the Democrats are going to have to do that. Because the challenge right now is, we said there's no free lunch. Any additional you know, unfinanced, unpaid for additional government spending is going to cause inflation. And we're expecting an increase in inflation in 2021 right now. And there becomes the challenge. So, you know, how much additional government spending? And what are the taxes that you're willing to accept to get there? And if it represents broad-based tax increases on small firms, on, on corporations, undoing some of the really positive tax cuts that we had in 2017, then we have to get into a discussion of costs and benefits and really make sure that the, any kind of additional spending is, is, is efficient and, and targeted and is not broad-based. Housing prices have boomed, lumber prices have surged, and now steel prices are following suit. Are these signs of inflation, or are they more indicative of supply constraints? So we're, we're staying with the idea right now that the, the economy is supply constrained. I do think we're going to see a small uptick in inflation. And we definitely see that right now in terms of producer prices. I think there's an expectation that we'll see what's called the core PCE measure of inflation. That's what the Federal Reserve looks at. It's going to get up above 2%. And 2% is the Fed's target. But they've said they're going to let the economy run hot in order to complete the recovery process in 2021. But as you said, whether it's home prices or in commodities, you're beginning to see those price pressures up. So the key economic policy question, particularly for the Federal Reserve, 
with respect to monetary policy is are these temporary pressures that will be relieved as we get more manufacturing, as we get more supply of these building materials, for example, in the construction side, and then we feed in, into uh, those inputs and we'll have more of them, and so the price growth ends? Or is this something more uh, you know, permanent, uh, where, where price growth is, is really continuing to grow year after year in the forecast based on the idea there's a lot more money moving around? As I said, I lean more to the idea with the Federal Reserve that it's temporary, but we're going to see this uptick this year, and it's a warning then uh, with respect to future fiscal policy. So when do you foresee prices moderating? So I think the expectation is right now that whether it's it's things like lumber or other kinds of building materials or steel or semiconductors for the auto industry and computer manufacturing, that by the time we get into 2022, we will start to see some normalization with respect to the producer price challenges, the input challenges. However, when you look at the futures market, for example, for lumber, the futures market has been saying that we would see easing prices for at least six or nine months. And every time we get to that next kind of, you know, important uh, deadline point, prices remain high. In fact, pricing for lumber has stayed above $1,000 per thousand board feet. And if you look at the current futures pricing, it has it staying there all the way through November of this year. So easing, my expectation, my hope, <laughs> the combination of both would be by the time we get into 2022, we get a more normalized building material environment. And keep in mind, it's not just a U.S. challenge that the global supply chains right now are, are, are tight due to the fact you've got a lot of economies that are reopening. You still have global trade itself. Uh, which is constrained. And as we've been saying in our forecast talks, there was no greater metaphor for the current health of global supply chains than that container ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. That was the perfect metaphor for what's going on with respect to global supply chains. And that includes passenger travel as well. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of those factors will continue through 2021. I think that's brilliant. One of the things that I've always admired is that you're a conservative forecaster. Um, at IBS, you forecast that multifamily starts would fall to 349,000 this year, then rise to 365,000 in 2022. We only had data through last November when that estimate was made. And just today, the Census Bureau released the residential construction report for March. Starts are averaging 440,000 units at an annualized rate for Q1. Has the strength of the market surprised you, and what does that portend? Yeah, the, the stabilization that we've seen in, in multifamily is definitely above where we, we expected at the start of the year. We, we went in with a conservative, maybe a more negative forecast for a number of reasons. One, uh, the NHB multifamily production index was below a level of 50, which would indicate declines. We ended the year with multifamily permits down more than 10%. In fact, at one point, they were down by 12%. But the data have come in stronger, and I think that's consistent with what you see with the vaccine data, that the overall economy is reopening faster than a lot of us expected. In fact, we've been chasing our unemployment forecasts down. In other words, the unemployment rate continues to fall faster than what we thought six months ago. So we have upgraded our multifamily forecast. We're now looking for something like 375,000 starts for 2021. That's a, that's a pretty big move up, but it's based off the fact that the unemployment rates improved and we think the improved vaccine data 
means that we're going to see additional demand for people in those urban core areas that did lose some people in 2020. And generally speaking, that's good news for multifamily. Important footnote, this doesn't come at the expense of single family. We're also upgrading our single family forecast. And so what you're seeing is broader economic momentum. I mentioned before, GDP growth will be really strong, but driven by the healing in the labor market, that's increasing household formations and increasing demand for second homes. So when you take all of that in, in combination, it means that we're upgrading both our multifamily forecast and single family forecast. The concern is there's got to be some cooling back to long run trends at some point because of these higher input costs, because of ongoing challenges like the skilled labor shortage for the construction industry. Well, Americans are on the move, as you mentioned, out of the urban core and into the suburbs. So is this a lasting trend or a fad? I think most of it's going to be concentrated in 2020. And what's interesting about the 2020 data is if you get a group of housing economists together, they'll get into a pretty aggressive debate for housing economists about how much urban exodus or urban flight, or as we called it, the suburban shift, we really did see in 2020. If you look at the price data, maybe some of the rent data, you see a little bit. If you look at the construction data, which is what we tend to focus on, in other words, single family and multifamily permits, without a doubt, you had faster growth in construction in lower density, lower cost markets, markets more like exurban areas, rural areas. And it was for single family and multifamily construction. It was both shifting out. But I think the story, and this gets to the, that broader upgrade of the overall forecast, is one where this demand is going to roll back in 2021. I think some of the suburban shift is going to persist on a partial basis because of a rise in telecommuting. Our estimates indicate based on some survey data that maybe 30 to 40% of the American population is likely to pursue not a work from home everyday type model, but maybe something like a 3-2-2 model. Uh, work in the office three days a week, work at home two days a week, and of course, a two-day weekend. And again, that's just 30 to 40% of the workers. We got to keep in mind there's a large part of the workforce that has to be at work to get the job done. But if even with that 30 or 40%, they can shift and live further out. And that means they can be a little bit more strategic in terms of finding that housing, whether it's an apartment for rent, single-family home for rent, or an entry-level purchase. So I think we get partial persistence on some of that suburban shift because of telecommuting. But we know a lot of demand is going to roll back into the urban cores of metropolitan areas across the country. So is that suburban shift going to drive people from multifamily to single family? To a certain extent. But I think we have to be careful. This could be easily exaggerated. Some of the, the growth in single family housing demand was going to take place anyway. Uh, we've got the leading edge of the millennials have turned you know, about age 41 the bulk of the millennial population is in their mid to late 30s. They were going to make some of that move from multifamily to single family uh, during this time period anyway. But the, the virus crisis did accelerate some of that. So I, I think we're going to see that younger population that would typically come into the multifamily space. That's going to occur, and it's going to occur with greater numbers as we get more mass deployment of the vaccine, particularly for young people. Because as we talk in, in April of 2021, we have to keep in mind only about a third of the American population is fully vaccinated, and most of them are baby boomers. So the demand that would come from those younger people being vaccinated 
still lies ahead of us. And I think that's why you see an uptick in some of that multifamily demand right now. Well, the single family rental market was born of the last housing crash and has grown into its own quite viable sector in the last years. How is that market doing in the wake of economic conditions? Single family built for rent is a market that we really do expect to see some growth here over the next few years. Uh, rental uh, tenure status, uh, being able to rent is, is an important part of the housing life cycle for people. Uh, and when we try to measure it right now, we think on the construction side, single family built for rent represents about four to six percent of overall single family construction starts. So it's probably about 60,000 units a year. Now that's not nothing, it's fairly significant, but it is a single digit share. My expectation is over the next few years, that four to 6% could easily become six to 8%. And we're gonna be adding tens of thousands of additional single family rental units to the marketplace. And of course that adds to the millions of single family homes that became rentals when their owners chose to rent them out rather than put them up for sale. So whether it's ownership of the existing single family rental stock or construction of single family built for rent, I do think that's a growing sector and it's going to reflect some of the change in consumer preferences of people looking for more space, maybe for a little bit more yard, but still wanting a rental housing experience. Construction labor has long been an issue for builders. The cycle in available work from a worker's perspective is brutal. Even now, employment for residential construction workers is 12% below the peak of 2006. Can anything be done to overcome these cycles and keep a trained workforce engaged? This is a clear agenda item for the overall construction industry. At any given moment, the construction industry is short two to 300,000 uh, construction workers. Now, we've got kind of an unusual environment right now where residential construction, its workforce is larger than it was a year ago. We're one of the few sectors that added workers during this particular recession. In fact, the industry is almost 90,000 workers larger than it was a year ago. Non-residential construction, on the other hand, is smaller than it was uh, before the virus crisis. So there, there has been some substitution effects where builders, remodelers, apartment developers have attracted workers from the non-residential construction sector. And if we think about the construction sector more broadly, particularly if we do get a large infrastructure spending package, we're going to have to recruit hundreds of thousands of additional workers into the sector. And whether it's because immigration has been declining or the fact that we have not done a particularly good job of recruiting younger Americans into the sector, that story has got to be told. And so good work is being done by organizations uh, like the Home Builders Institute that trains construction workers or just working with trade schools and community colleges to bring people into the industry. And as we said, one of the things in the forecast is that the unemployment rate has been going down faster than what we thought, say, six months ago. That can occur in, in a, with additional speed if the construction industry continues to create jobs. The housing shortage grows, even so. Market conditions between residential and non-residential vary. Does this portend opportunity for missing middle and larger multifamily construction? I really think it does. So one of the things that we've seen since the end of the Great Recession was the multifamily production in that two to 10 unit space as a share of total production went way down. 
Uh, there were gains for the amount of production that was being created in the 50 plus unit production. In fact, in recent years, 50 plus unit production share uh, was more than half of overall multifamily. If you look 20 years ago, it was somewhere between 10 and, and 20%. And that share gain came at the cost of what we call the, the missing middle, that two to 10 unit production plus townhouse construction. And there were some hints at the end of 2020 of that resurgence of demand for construction in that particular uh, market space. Uh, we had in the fourth quarter of 2020, the best quarter for townhouse construction in a year and a half. And that occurred with, again, some of that demand rolling back into the inner suburbs with an expectation that we get to a more normal environment here in, in 2020. So I think we're going to build on some of that momentum. We're gonna see growth of two to 10 unit multifamily. It's not gonna get back to where it needs to be, but it, the share is gonna go up. And in fact, if you look at the first quarter 2021 data, uh, the, the relative account of production of that missing middle multifamily is up more than 30% compared to a year ago. That's fantastic news from your lips to God's ear. That's right. Well, this was the uh, fastest 20 minutes of my week. And I really appreciate you being on the show, Rob. I hope you'll come back soon. Absolutely. It was good to be here, Linda. Thank you. Rob, you remain one of the smartest guys out there, a true voice of reason. And you've always seemed to follow the numbers to the truth. We need your voice of clarity, especially today. Rob, thank you for joining us today. And I hope you will look for us on our next exciting show of NAHB Power Hitters.